Welcome to the Happy Pair Podcast. We're Dave and Steve, identical twins, and this show is about health, happiness, community, and making your life better. Woo! This week, we are joined with the wonderful Dr. Tim Spector. He's in the topmost hundred-sided scientists of all time. He's amazing and so articulate and practical in how he describes health. Yeah, he really is an expert in terms of genetics and the microbiome. They're two of the main areas. He's written uh, a number of best-selling books. And as Stephen said, he's in the 1% most cited scientists of all times. He cut his teeth on identical twin studies on nature versus nurture. And the microbiome is an area which we really camp out here because that's where a lot of his thousand research papers have been based on the microbiome and the impactors of it. Um, we talk about food, fermented foods, about things you can do in terms of your microbiome and your overall good health, the role that genetics play versus the microbiome. Fascinating conversation. Tim really is a world expert. He's been someone that we've wanted as a guest on our podcast for years. And today we want to share with you this wonderful conversation with the great Tim Spector. Tim, absolute pleasure to have you. Really, really is. Um, and first place I would love to jump off is we are identical twins. We shared a room our whole life. You know, we lived, to, we shared a wardrobe till we were 30. We started a business um, called The Happy Pair, where we've eaten a plant-based diet for 20 years. We were womb mates. Yeah, that's that's really bad, Steve. Um, but uh, like we've really lived in the same environment. We eat the same food because we've got a food business. Uh we tend to live in one of those pockets. We're now 43. And I know you've done tons of research in terms of twins, including your 2012 book, which was identically different. And I'd love to just unravel a little bit because that was the kind of the kernel which got you into the gut really was it started with identical twins, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. Because um, most of my career, about 30 years looking at twins and identical twins. And I, I got really interested in not so much the similarities, but the dissimilarities you know uh, everyone just focused on you know habits and uh, the way you you guys pick up a coffee cup or a beer beer or you know laugh or smile but people don't focus on things like twins getting a aging at different rates or dying at different times or getting different cancers or one being depressed one being happy uh, Etc. So I was really fascinated to try and work out, you know, if you could crack that uh, in twins, it would generalize to the rest of the population because you, know, you guys are a unique natural experiment that you can only do in in mice and rats. Uh, <laughs> I like, so you like, put, like mice and rats. It's great. You are, yeah, you're you're lab rats, really, because you know. You couldn't. Uh, you'd have to crossbreed humans to, and then get them to live in exactly the same place for a third of their life, and then see what happened to them. So um, it's it's fantastic that nature uh, allows this to happen, and we can do these amazing experiments on on real people that should inform everybody about nature and nurture, and you know why stuff happens to us. And um, so that was really my. And what were the general what were the general findings of it? Like, what was it? Was it that lifestyle and obviously Nature epigenetics versus... resulted in different predisposition towards certain chronic diseases? The average, if you just look across, you know, hundreds of diseases, it's it's about fifty fifty okay. between about nature 50% and nurture. Fifty percent nurture, fifty percent nature. Wow. Um, or fifty percent genetics, fifty percent environment, and that you know there are a few exceptions but broadly that's that's around it but for things like aging 
the rate of aging or age-related disease, it was less. And things like cancer, it's much less. It's around you know, 20% genetics and 80% environment. Um, so that was always interesting. So I was, I was trying to look for what was different about identical twins that would explain this. Because, you know, you're, you're clones, you have the same uh, genes, the same DNA in every cell in your body, and you virtually had identical lifestyles for, you know, a couple of decades. So uh, any differences between you could be really significant. And we looked at epigenetics first. Um, because obviously this, the genes are the same, but these little chemicals that can sit on top of your genes that can switch them on and off. And in that book, Identically Different, I did sort of discuss a few ideas about why that made some twins different. Um, and it might be due to you know emotional traumas or big things that happen in the life of, of kids, particularly that send them on different pathways, which could be due to these little chemicals which um, can change personality or, or, or other uh, areas. Um, but those differences were relatively small. So they, there were a few anecdotes. Um, you know, in a, that book, I did look at, for example, at homosexuality and why identical twins often are discordant for sexuality, which is kind of weird as well. Wow. As in one was heterosexual and one might be homosexual. Yeah, which, which you wouldn't expect to be very common, but it, it is quite common. And uh, that, that was fascinating. So thinking there might have been some change or in the womb, you know, again, some of these epigenetic signals, these little chemicals are just changed around. And I think really interesting philosophical to think, well, we could have been, you know, someone quite different, uh, but for a few chemicals floating around at different times. And same is true for diseases as well, or autoimmune disease or things like this. So that was fascinating to me. But I. I sort of, then I came across, I guess, around that same time, about, two, about uh, 12 years ago, the idea of the microbiome. And I was fascinated to see if these, this community of microbes in our gut uh, were similar or different in twins. Were they mainly genetic? Did you like acquire them? And, you know, they followed you around because you had the right genes. That means that, you know, they liked your intestines, you know, and uh, more than someone else's, so they stuck with them, in which case identical twins should have identical microbiomes. Um, and it turns out that you don't. You're really only slightly genetic. You're only slightly more similar than unrelated people, which is really interesting. Wow, that we're not ridiculously and similar. I, I, I wonder if this is true, because a friend, I, I had lunch with a friend, and he was, uh, he was a scientist of, of uh, the microbiome, and he said that I'm like, as identical twins, he said, I'm probably more microbial, um, similar to my wife, because we share the same home, the same environment, we sleep in the same bed. And you're probably more identical, like Stephen being my identical twin, he's more identically, like microbiome uh, is that more identical to his wife because they live in different homes. Is that correct? That is probably correct. Yeah, we did. We've done studies on that with, with twins. And certainly the household is really important. And even your dog. Um, you will share you'll share microbes with your dog yeah i've got a cat really important so uh um 
if you share wives and dogs, then it, it, it gets more similar. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> we don't just clarify. We won't, but we I won't like go that. there on, the, on this one. That, yeah, that's the, that's, that's the late night one. Um, <laughs> so, so, I, I got, so for me, a big aha moment in, my, in this science career was finding out that identical twins like you had very different gut microbiomes. So suddenly, um, I had a, a mechanism by which, you know, all these common diseases, even personality traits, and be, could be explained by having different microbes because of this new understanding of what the gut microbes are, which really they're like a new organ in the body, which produces chemicals. They're like a, a massive chemical factory. And if that factory is different, uh, you're going to be producing different chemicals to your brother. That and, sit on top of the genes and therefore influence epigenetics. Yeah. Well, there's 500 times more genes in your gut microbes than there are in your cells. So we have a much bigger catalog, if you like, of chemicals we can produce from our gut microbes in response to food than we, we have inherently in our bodies. And that's why we've co-evolved. So we've got this huge extra diversity um, that's, been given to us by having by in a way forming a little home for our gut microbes so that's that's really interesting so in a way twins are much less similar than we thought they were uh, before we discovered gut microbes 10 years ago and i think you know you guys probably know more than anyone that you are more different than people think you are and uh, everyone assumes you're you're just these clones that do everything the same way. And I think now you've got a bit of science to explain why that is. Is you know you can eat the same foods, and we did this with the Zoe Predict studies. You know you will react very differently. So often you react differently to the same stress, and and part of that is because all these chemicals you're producing are going to be different. And I think that's that's fascinating. Yeah, it really, really is. Yeah, yeah. Like the gut, the gut being an additional organ that influences every aspect of your life, really. And it's only been the last kind of ten to twenty years, really, that the whole microbiome, how it's really being considered another organ and influencing every aspect of health, not just kind of your immune system, where most of your, you know, most of your gut cell, your immune system cells are in your gut, but your mental health. I wonder if you could talk about the importance of, of like the gut in terms of mental health, because some like mental health, obviously massive epidemic in terms of, you know, our well-being and anxiety levels and all these type of things. And most of us will blame it on stress and external stimulants, but we live in an obesogenic environment, which is, you know, there's so much ultra processed foods around. And this is the easy choice. You know, the easy choice is to eat the ultra processed foods, particularly if we're stressed. And I wonder it's the correlation between the gut microbiome and mental health. There's loads of links there now. That's... Uh, yeah, no, you're right. It, it, it's it's growing every week as we get more data on this. Um, I think we all we all knew that. You know, we've always known. I mean, ancient Indian Ayurvedic medicine has always put the gut at the centre of everything, anyway, and that particularly that you know our our mental health, and we we know about. You know, when we're stressed, we get butterflies. We get you know gut feelings. Uh, exams you might be going to the running to the toilet all the time some people so there's always been this connection between um stress and our and our guts but the microbiome has really started to explain why that is because we have in our guts 
as well as all these immune cells, we've got all these nerve cells. So if you put them all together, it's the same size as a cat's brain. So, you know, it's, it's our second brain is actually along the lining of our guts. And we never knew why that was, you know, a bit of a waste of nerve cells. But it turns out there's this huge correlation so that the gut microbes are communicating with those nerve cells all along the gut wall. And there's this big nerve that goes from the gut all the way to the brain called the vagus nerve. And that is another way they communicate. They also produce lots of brain chemicals. So the, the chemicals uh, that are important for, say, being depressed or happy, serotonin, uh, most of it is made in your gut by your gut microbes and then uh, transported towards your brain, as is other ones called GABA, which are uh, chemicals that are released when you take Valium. So these are natural anti-anxiolytics that your gut microbes produce. So when we're finding out more and more that all these chemicals are really could interact with your brain and change your mood, change your appetite, and uh, maybe responsible for hunger, you know, these hunger signals that many people who are overeating get, and will interact with your food. And there's lots of studies now that are showing not only that probiotics can help things like depression and anxiety, but actually shifting people to a gut-friendly Mediterranean diet uh, has an even bigger effect than antidepressants. That, that was the, so you, the SMILES research. I, I remember reading yeah. about that in New Zealand that kind of took two cohorts, one uh, that both teenage kids that suffer with depression and they put one on a, you know, a high fiber diet, a more Mediterranean based diet. And the other one they gave them, I think it was antidepressants and they tracked counseling. them both over a period of time. I think it was counseling and antidepressants. And I think it was, they found that the food was as effective, if not more. Yeah, they were, they were all on it. I think most were on antidepressants anyway, but it was in addition to that. And, um, that's, you know, but it, it, it had a, quite a dramatic effect because antidepressants work very well in some people, but they don't work very well in many others. And other studies have shown that whether they work or not depends on your gut microbes. And it comes back to this idea that everybody has a unique set of gut microbes. And we, we, it means that one, one size fits all approaches, whether it's for your standard diet or even doses of medication, et cetera, you know, really often uh, don't apply well. And so we've seen that most of the drugs studied so far have an interaction with your gut microbes. So it explains why some people, you know, don't respond to antidepressants, why some people don't respond to some heart tablets and uh, even things like painkillers like paracetamol. Uh, some people prefer ibuprofen to paracetamol. It's, it's about the gut microbes, whether they're breaking it down. So we're learning more and more about how important these guys are really in every, every chemical we put into our bodies. We've become Instant Pot ambassadors, amazing kitchen appliances that's going to make it easier for you to cook healthy, save money and save time. It literally rethink the way you cook. You know, you literally pop a hundred ingredients in it and then you've got hands off cooking. Like I'll put a hundred ingredients in and then I can go do what I want and come back in 30 or 50 minutes later and the dinner's cooked. It's a great way. Many people are kind of afraid of a pressure cooker, but this is a new 
kind of advanced. It takes away the worry from pressure cooking. Because you're cooking in one pot, you literally only have one pot to clean up. And it's a beautiful way to have six portion capacity. So it's easy to cook for the family. Yeah, it's so simple to use, even for a novice home cook. I genuinely use it all the time. I make oat groats in the morning. I make dals. I make chilies. I make curries. And literally when I'm making the girls' lunch boxes, I'll pop a whole lot of ingredients in and schedule it to come on for when I come home and dinner's ready. Like it's, it's a no-brainer. We're working with them. We've They've given an exclusive discount. Where do people find out details? They'll find out details on the show notes for this episode. It's called the Instant Pot Duo Plus Whisper Quiet. It's their latest model. It's amazing. I use it genuinely. I use it all the time. I'm not joking. Link in our show notes. Time to pay the bills now. Um, As we said, this podcast is sponsored by Vivo Barefoot Shoes. They're really, they're the only shoes we've been wearing for six years. And really, we wouldn't take someone as a sponsor unless we really believe in them. And this is a company and these are shoes that we've seen it in ourselves. Our feet have become more natural. They're stronger. They're wider. I can isolate this, this kind of movement called toga, which sounds funny and sounds stupid, but it's where you can isolate your toes and move them kind of Individually. Individually. And through wearing shoes, at least there's even research from Vivo at universities that your feet muscles will typically improve by 60% within a number of weeks of just wearing barefoot within shoes. Within 100 days, I think 100 it is. Days, so, and even think about it logically that in a house, the foundation or the base of the house is the really the, the most important bit which the structure sits on. And the same way we kind of, we just wear shoes without thinking about it, yet our feet are the foundation. And when you've got them in shoes that actually encourage the natural kind of movements within your feet it enhances every aspect of your anatomy yeah so uh, if anyone does want to try them out uh, Vivo Barefoot are offering a 15% off with the code HAPPYPAIR15 and you have nothing to worry about they're offering a 100 day return policy so if you don't like your Vivo Barefoot you can return them free of charge yeah so check them out VivoBarefoot.com full range of shoes for all the family from formal to casual to kids um, and everything in between so 15% off Happy Pair 15 when I was growing up, um, I only had one friend that I knew of, and obviously I didn't know that many people, but I need one friend who had an allergy. He was allergic to eggs. And I remember he couldn't eat eggs. If he ate eggs, Hugh Cahill was nearly going to blow up, you know, that type of the way. Um, but now when my children go to school, every class, there's no nuts in the school. There's this person allergic to this, that, the other. Kiwis, like allergies are pervasive. And I'm just curious about the, as we have moved into more, complex, sterile society. We're not exposed to as much biodiversity of microorganisms. As a result, our, our microbiomes are probably less diverse. And as a result, we're probably, it, there's probably a correlation between that and allergens. Or is there, or is this just a strange hypothesis? Yeah, it was not that strange, right? <clears throat> 1969, Man on the Moon was the first medical report of a food allergy. Wow. 1969. Yeah. What was it? What were they allergic to? Space. I think it, it might have been, I think it was shellfish or something. But, um, it was, uh, and so, you know, when I was at school, I mean, I'm older than you guys, nobody had an I never heard of it. And it was only when I was about you know, 20 or so, and I met some American guy who, you know, had carried an EpiPen. That was the first, I, uh, first time I'd ever encountered anybody. And so food allergies are, are novel for humans. And I think something has to have changed in the last 50 years quite dramatically. And the number one thing that's changed is our diet. Uh, ultra processed foods, uh, reducing fiber, um, sterile foods, which have lots of chemicals in them, um, I think is one factor. The other is you know, we're living in cities. We're not getting as dirty as much. We're not 
playing in the garden and getting muddy. Um, we're not mixing with animals as much, although you know I see you are mixing with your dog. Um, <laughs> and uh, and we also take many more antibiotics than we did 50 years ago. So the average 20-year-old is about 18 courses of antibiotics by the time they they get there. So if you combine, you know, junk foods, antibiotics, uh, uh, moving into cities, that probably explains why we've lost about half of the species that are uh, we had, a, you know, 50 to 100 years ago, and all our ancestors had. And when we compare ourselves to hunter-gatherers, we see that big difference. So I think uh, that lack of species means we probably aren't getting the chemicals to keep our immune system in top form. And it means that it's overreacting to certain foods as well. So that's why we get these this imbalance and why our ancestors didn't, because they were perhaps getting more, might have been getting more infections as well, minor infections. Their, their immune system was much better trained than ours. And so we're jumping at the sight of a little mouse, you know, uh, whereas in the past we'd have dealt with that very easily. And that's probably where this allergy is coming from. And it does seem to occur, interesting, less in deprived families and less in large families. So oh, yeah. the bigger, if you've got a big family from a deprived background, you will get less allergies than from if you're a single, um, a single kid in a in a in a, an affluent neighbourhood. So it it is, it it is interesting. But it's very sad. But, you know, we need to look at and see how our modern living is is giving us new diseases that we haven't thought about. And then can we turn that around? Like, can suddenly just suddenly say, for example, you said over the last hundred years, we've lost approximately 50% of our microbial biodiversity. Can suddenly decide, okay, I'm going to start eating more fiber-rich foods, more fermented foods. I'm going to spend time outside. I'm going to have loads of animals. I'm going to actually have a zoo and I'm going to work in the zoo. It's going to be wonderful. I'm going to bathe in dirt and I can spend time outside in different ecosystems. Can one suddenly increase their microbial diversity massively and significantly and therefore influence every aspect of their health? You can get a long way there, yes. I I don't think I'll ever get to the state of a, a Hansa hunter-gatherer. <laughs> okay, yeah. um, I mean, and some of my colleagues have tried poo transplants from them, and that even that didn't work. Wow. Um, but when I spent a week with them, I, you know, I did get more species. Well, that was in Tanzania, was it? I was in Tanzania. I got forty percent more species, but they they were short lived. And I was couldn't that, keep them. And was I that, couldn't keep them there. And were you like uh, wandering around Tanzania, like you know, living their lifestyle? Going, yeah, uh, yeah, we were we were camping next to them and eating that exactly the same food as they did for a week. Um, so, you know, it was short term, uh, but as soon as I got back on the plane, had airplane food, and it's sterile packaging or whatever, you know, I was back to where I started from. But, but seriously, I, I think. A lot of our studies are showing, um, you know, I now work with this company, Zoe, uh, that I co-founded, and we've got 100,000 people's microbes, biomes now. And people who do improve their diets, improve their, their diversity, the number of species quite considerably. So, um, and other people, with other studies have shown short term that just in a, in a couple of weeks, you can significantly improve your ratio of good to bad bugs and diversity. So I think we can get a long way back there, but whether we've killed off some of these guys forever, so they no longer exist in humans, so it's hard to get them, 
I think we have to accept that. But if we can get perhaps half of the way back to where we were, which is still a major improvement on 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 where we are now. Yeah. And the, if we all got to where the best person is, you know, because even within, you know, in the UK, Ireland, you know, there's a huge range between the worst and the best. And if we just aspire to be the best within our population, we'd be doing pretty well. Mm, yeah, because I know from uh, the British Good Project and the American Good Project, you found that diversity was one of the main, you know, benefactor, the main things which you can do as an individual to improve your own microbial health. And even, uh, you know, a, a few minutes ago, you mentioned three things. You mentioned uh, like ultra processed foods are one of the big, you know, our, our modern food system is really affecting our microbiome, the cities and then and antibiotics, like trying to avoid unnecessary antibiotics. And I just wondered in terms, is there a weighting across those three? Like is food, is food spending more time in nature or um, avoiding unnecessary antibiotics? Is there a kind of weighting or does, is it personalized again? It's very much in line with some of the Well, other... you can only talk on average. Um, but if you're on average from the epidemiology studies, food is number one. Um, you will get some individuals who've had a lot of antibiotics and you know had problems with it. But overall, if we improved our, our food, and I think this is the the empowering bit because you know the most important health choices we make every day are our food choices and if we did learn to make better ones we would all improve our health and our gut microbiomes and i think that that's the important thing it's you know most of us have had our antibiotics you know we can blame our parents or the school or whatever it was or our the doctors uh hard to change that and we may need them to save our life in the future um obviously we, we can't all go and live as hermits uh you know living in a barn with animals uh all the time we can do a little bit of that going out of weekends and you know uh gut or even gardening and things which is it is good for your gut microbes but this, the one thing the most important thing and the thing we can change every day rapidly is improving what we eat and uh that will have a, a really rapid effect and the, and the kind of the foundation of that is to increase more fiber rich foods because fiber is the ultimate people are obsessed with a probiotic but fiber is ultimately the prebiotic isn't that true well it's, it's a combination of factors so i mean uh, i always say this you know five key uh elements to improving your gut microbes uh one is to eat a diversity of plants and from the British Gut Project, we, we came up with this 30 plants a week, which um, and that includes nuts and seeds and herbs and spices just to give variety to produce lots of microbial species and fiber, because if you have 30 a week, you're going to get the fiber without counting it. Um, then the other one is eat the rainbow. So you're getting all the colorful plants, but also you're getting things you may not have thought of as healthy, like coffee, uh, extra virgin olive oil, dark chocolate, you know, um, even some small amounts of alcohol like red wine because they're very, very tannic and they have those uh, high polyphenols, but berries and, uh, and nuts and seeds. And then fermented foods is the third one. Regular fermented foods, not once a week, but several times a day and try and get more than just yogurt because there's many more out there um give your microbes a rest at night uh 
just like you, they need to relax. And when they do relax, they're not eating when they're not eating food, they will be repairing your gut wall. They'll be um, having a, a sort of repair team comes out at night, just like you have different teams in American football. You know, it's a whole new team comes out when you stop eating. And so you've got to give them the chance to do their repair work, clean up your gut wall, and uh, get you metabolically in a really good shape. And then finally, it's stop eating ultra-processed food with all those chemicals that uh, have emulsifiers, artificial sweeteners, preservatives that are really interfering with your gut microbes and making them send off all kinds of weird chemical signals that you don't want. So that's the five-point plan. And I think if, if, you, if you can do most of those things most days, uh, you, you can't, you'll, you'll be on the right track. What I like about what I really like about it is that it's not prescriptive. You know, it's not like you know the way food can often be religious with people having. I'm ketogenic. I'm a blah blah blah. Whatever label you want to be, but it's very you know it's, it sounds like it's baggy enough that people go okay. Well, it's to eat thirty plants a week. You know, eat probiotics, eat the rainbow, and eat uh, fermented foods. Yeah, eat fermented foods. Yeah, exactly. And it, I'm not saying to anyone don't eat meat or don't eat fish or don't eat eggs. You know, it, it, once you've got that base. You can do what you like, and our studies haven't shown big differences. As long as you can eat that range of plants, on top of that, if you've got a particular preference for things, uh, that's fine. And you know, and sometimes, you know, it, maybe you have to have the odd bit of ultra-processed food in order to enjoy all those plants. You know, uh, you maybe someone has to have a bit of mayonnaise on something. Just, but it, I don't mind as long as you're getting those plants in, and. You know, we're eating 60% of our calories as ultra-processed food. So even if we get that down to 20%, that's still going to be really good. So I think abs we don't want to be talking about absolute amounts. And also I like the 80-20 rule, you know. Um, if you can do this 80% of the time, it's going to be sustainable for your life. And this is really what I think the emphasis of my books are and and also the company Zoe is. We we don't we're not after a quick fix here. We're trying to change people's idea about eating and what healthy food is, and um, make that sustainable for the rest of their lives. So they'll always look at food differently, and won't be beat up if they you know have a go to a party and you know they drink too much alcohol and have some you know crisps and snacks and whatever and and don't fast and do everything wrong. It doesn't matter long as you see this as a long-term journey that you're you're doing more and more of that. And it it's combating this idea of these food religions and the calorie counters and the I'll never do this, I'll never do that. I think it's it's really a, a different way of thinking about food and it's um it's great. And I think, you know, we're getting great responses to the people who have done it, because they do see it as a, a way of life rather than there's just some restrictive diet that you know, works for three months, then fails miserably. Yeah, I think ultimately it's really inclusive, which is the key to any change. Yeah, we, we've certainly been plant pushers for the last 20 years and our main mantra has always been to eat more veg, eat more veg, eat more veg, because it's it's a bit like it is it is applicable no matter what your, you know, food philosophy is. You know, I think it, it was hard to have a message without really the science to back it up. And I think once you start giving people a reason to eat veg other than saying, you know, it's great to be veggie or vegan, um, which appeals to some people, but probably not the majority. 
then it makes it a lot easier because they, you know, and I think this idea that if you eat lots of plants, you know, you're nurturing your own internal jungle or garden and that, you know, all these other little animals depend on you for what you put in there. And you can start teaching children that and you can start getting that idea out. People will will stop putting any old crap in their mouth and uh, hoping that, you know, it's going to um, boost them just because it's got, you know, added protein on the label. Yeah. On, on that note, and like, as I've seen you, um, lots of different, you do some wonderful videos on social media. And one that I saw recently, which you did, I think it was Steve Bartlett, was um, protein and fat. Because, you know, we live in a protein-obsessed society. For some reason, protein is associated with being more macho or being stronger, being muscly or being... I don't know. I don't know historically where it has come from, but we live in a society where it's obsessed with protein. And I've seen you to have a really interesting stance in that you're talking about. Often that protein is converted into, and the body stores it as fat, which is contrary to what most people would assume. Yeah, because you can't store protein. That's the that's the key. So you don't sort of keep it for a rainy day when, you know, you just happen to turn up in the gym and you can use it and you get big muscles. So um, this is a huge misconception. And, and that, but you know, the food industry have locked into that our ignorance about protein and uh, sort of trying to pretend we're all protein deficient. That's why we're not beefed up enough and uh, you know looking too puny and. Um, uh, and morally feeble and you know so we need protein and you know the idea is that you know when you have sugars off sugars you you use it and if it's not used up um it gets converted to fat uh fat uh unless you're using it in long-term energy it will get converted to fat and stored in the body and that's our survival mechanism uh, and protein is not very efficient, so you don't as an energy source, but you'll only use it if your body needs it at that moment to, or in the next few hours, to help synthesize new muscle protein and or rebuild, you know, repair general repair work, but we don't need very much of it. And so most of us are having nearly double the amount we need anyway from our normal food and so by taking these extra proteins whether it's in powders snack bars or uh steaks we uh, are not using it so it gets broken down into these little fractions that actually get converted back to uh, sugars and then to fats so uh people think oh i never get fat by eating protein uh they do so that's that's the big, you know, you either pee it out or it 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 goes onto your belly, but most of it's not going into your bicep. Well, and, so, then, and, and then in terms of protein, like say minimum requirement, approximately around ten percent of calories, and people are probably getting around twenty percent. Would that be roughly accurate, or is it? Uh, roughly, yes. I mean, it, it all depends on the age, but so I think we, you know. It's possible that about 5% of the whole population are not getting enough protein. Most of those are elderly people who are not eating very much. But young people are eating plenty of food, will be getting you know, a lot of their, their protein from things like grains or just by eating a bit of spaghetti or um, uh, 
having some beans, baked beans or whatever it is. You know, uh, there's protein in many things uh, that we don't think about in yogurt, in eggs. And um, so the only people might need to worry, if you are a vegan bodybuilder, for example, and uh, you don't have, you're not really careful with what you're eating, yeah, you might need some extra protein. Um, if you are a 75-year-old uh, lady who wants to keep exercising and build up her muscle, but she also wants to lose weight at the same time, then she, she might worry. Uh, everyone else is probably getting at least double what they need already. And I think that's the that's the lesson. So I think it's this blanket promoting advertising saying we must have more protein and protein is healthy and there's no downside to it is just showing how uh, susceptible we are to advertising and marketing this in this area and how we don't have the people really to tell us what's going on. And, you know, in a few years later, we'll feel like mugs again, having been conned by the food industry, just like they fooled us with low fat foods and, uh, uh, you know, low diet diet drinks and uh, artificial sweeteners and all these things that they persuaded us we needed were much better for us, but turned out not to be. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's mad. Like it really is. And you, you talked there about the food industry and I want to bring it back to like, it's very difficult. Like your work is amazing. Like it really, really is. Like all the books you've written, like your most recent book is incredibly detailed and all your books are incredibly detailed. And but I feel like as anyone who's kind of an advocate for eating better, eating more plants, eating, you know, adopting healthy lifestyle choices, choices, it's very difficult because the environment doesn't necessarily support this. And a bit like everyone is eating protein, like most people are eating protein stuff because they think that's what, well, obviously we just need more protein. You know, that's what everyone's doing. It's a cultural kind of mindset shift. So I'm kind of just thinking bigger and kind of going, well, how do we as a society, like our society is not set up for us to be healthy. Like you look at the blue zones. I know, you know, Dan Butner. you look at the longest living people on the planet and they live really long because their environment, the easy choice, the healthy choice is the easy choice. Whereas nowadays, as you said, most of us live in cities and in cities, there's processed foods, there's busy lives, there's, you know, we tend to just ultra-processed feeds pl pl proliferate. And I'm wondering, what can we do? Like, I know you've got Zoe, which is obviously, you've, you're really um, coming at it from your perspective, but I'm thinking more as a society, how do we, how can we change this? How can we do something about it that's not just about trying to convert one individual to eat better because they feel sick or whatnot? Yeah, well, this is the real problem, but I think, You've got to put it in perspective. So, you know, the UK, Ireland, and the USA are leading the world in ultra-processed foods. I mean, maybe a bit of competition from Australia, but, um, you know, the English-speaking world is really leading the way in ultra-processed foods. So we're around 60% of all our calories are taken with these highly industrial food-like substances. And... You compare to other countries in Europe, France, Italy, Spain, Greece, uh, not necessarily rich countries, they're down at about 15%. 15%? Okay, so we're having 15. So we're eating four times more than uh, countries that are maybe not as rich as us or equivalent to us. Um, so it's clearly a cultural uh, change that's different, which means that it's quite possible for us to move back to that level without involving a lot of money 
Uh, and his question is, how do we get ourselves out of this mess that's really been brought up by the usual thing of, you know, UK, US driving, capitalism, free markets, um, no nanny state, you know, give them cigarettes, give them uh, alcohol, see what happens. You know, it, we shouldn't interfere um, with a vacuum of a, a lack of food culture. In, in the Mediterranean countries, they have, you know, they have local markets. They don't use supermarkets as much. Uh, everyone wants to get fresh produce and people know how to cook. And it, it, so it, it goes to this whole, a lot of education. Now, once you're in this mess, the question is, how do you get back to reasonable levels? How do you get back below 20% ultra-processed food? And I think you do need government interventions. You do need um, not only labeling on foods to start labeling them as, as potentially dangerous, like you have on alcohol and cigarettes. And it's not unlike the situation we had in the 1980s with passive smoking. Um, the food, you know, the cigarette industry, the food industry, they try to say, well, our stuff isn't that bad. You know, the uh, the research is, it's all a bit misleading. It's not conclusive. It's ed epidemiology, blah, blah, blah. Trying to muddy the water. And they've got billions to spend on, you know, uh, influencing politicians and making sure that nothing changes. So we're fighting that. But I think um, making ultra-processed food visibly out there is this can potentially harm your health. By all means, have it. I'm not for banning anything, but I think you should tell people the honest truth. And it should. there's now very, very good data that if you eat ultra-processed food rather than the whole food equivalent, it will make you overeat by 25%. Now, if that was on every pack, a warning, this food will make you 25% hungrier than eating something else, and you'll eat 25% more uh, by the end of the day or tomorrow, and that's why you're going to get fat. I, I think it would reduce levels to uh, Mediterranean levels, so 20%. People would say, okay, I'm having this as a treat. But I'm not having this every day because I realize this is my problem. I'm getting addicted to this stuff. These chemicals are, you know, brilliantly fiddling on my mind or my gut, however they're doing it. And I'm going to avoid it. So labeling, um, honesty and transparency about the latest research. Um, I would be putting a tax on it, just as you do on cigarettes and alcohol. And with that tax, I'd be subsidizing um, cooking in schools, I'd be subsidizing fresh fruit and vegetables, making school dinners really healthy and not uh, and hospital food healthy, all the institutions. That's what that's really what I would be doing. But I think a lot of it is education and uh, realizing that this costs all of us money. So all taxpayers are paying for the profits of the food industry because we don't link them up with health. Jeez, here, here, you got my vote, Tim Spector. Yeah, yeah, Tim here, for here. president. Tim for president. Yeah, defo. Brilliant, 20 you're running. Politicians don't listen to me, unfortunately, so no, I'm not a not. very good politician. Well, you don't have enough big paychecks, possibly. possibly. <laughs> um, you mentioned there was two things there that really... One cool. thing that I absolutely just wanted to stop just to say there, sorry to interrupt, Dave, um, is that you called processed foods food-like substances. I love that. And I think that's a huge 
paradigm shift to see rather than seeing these things as actual foods that are nourishing these are just food-like substances that deliver a quick dopamine hit but cost your health yeah and that they're created in laboratories and factories and they don't contain any of the original ingredients they're just you know composites of them stuck together high pressurized glued together baked you know and they come out looking like vaguely like food and uh we're fooled by that and uh you know the scientists that make them are brilliant and they're you know but Edible food-like substances is what we should be recording at that stuff. I love Edible food-like substances. Brilliant. Uh, you mentioned, you, there was one thing there you mentioned, well, two things which really jumped at me. One was label reading. So oh. label reading, I walked down the supermarket and every food in the supermarket is trying to trick me to buy it. Like I look at the front of them, natural, you know, and it says something like it's trying, the front of it is trying to trick me into buying it. And I'm wondering, could you give anyone listening some just basic tips for label reading? Because... You know, our philosophy has always been buy as much as you can from the vegetable section, you know, from where it's unpackaged. But obviously, all of us go into the middle section, the supermarket, which is all the processed foods. What are some kind of just basic tips for label reading? If it's got packaging and it's got a health claim on it, it's probably ultra processed food. That's that's the number one tip. So if they have to say something about it, you know, you don't have a health claim on an apple, do you? So, you know, it's um, pretty <laughs> like obvious. Um, then beneath that, I mean, natural means nothing. Um, it has no meaning at all. And um, if it says high in protein, uh, that's rubbish. Uh, if it says low fat, that's probably harmful for you. Um, if it says, um, uh, you know, High in fiber, it doesn't mean very much because uh, you only need tiny amounts of fiber to get that claim. Uh, if it's got added vitamins and minerals, it's because they've stripped them all out in the first place. Um, and these added ones, you know, may be totally inappropriate. So, in general, um, you know, if it's low in sugar, you're very suspicious that it contains massive amounts of chemicals, uh, artificial sweetness, which mess up your gut microbes. So, in general, anything with a health claim, really look at the back of the, the label. It's it's a big red warning sign. Um, good food doesn't need uh, health claims on them. And the sort of health claims people are allowed to are ridiculous anyway. I mean, many of them are out of date. You know, people add zinc to food just because uh, you can claim something about the immune system in it, although the studies were done 30 years ago and were totally wrong. But um, so they'll add zinc to your food just so they can get a health claim on that. Um, it, it is nonsense. And you can't and you can't have a health claim interesting about probiotics, although, you know, um, we realize fermented foods are good for you. Yeah. What, but, what, what about the nutritional table? Like, so say claims, right? Claims the front. Yeah, 100% agree. Say nutritional table, I turn around and I go, right, I want to look at the facts. The ingredients in the nutritional table. Ingredients, I've heard you say before, try to make it ones that you recognize and, you know, no more than 20, like less than 20 ingredients. And I just wondered in well, terms of... Maybe less. Less than 10, is it? Less, uh, yeah, I mean, 20 is definitely ultra processed. So, yeah. you know, um, as li little as possible. Yeah, you know, good yeah. food should have three or four, you know, so... And what about, what about say, fiber per 100 grams or sugar per 100 grams? Any kind of guidelines around that? Yeah, I mean, fiber is really important to look at, and it's often not on the front of the pack. 
because it's not compulsory. Because um, that we're still in the age where we're obsessed with fat and sugar, and uh, they can get around that with processing. So they're they're actually pretty irrelevant. What's I mean, if it contains a lot of sugar, that for many things that is important. And just remember that four grams of sugar is a teaspoon. So if something's got 12 grams of sugar in it, that's three teaspoons you'd be putting in uh, in a drink or whatever. It's far too much. Um, so it's fiber is the number thing I look at uh, and uh, working out how much you're getting. Maybe the fiber to sugar ratio is probably the thing to do. Um, and But people should also look at protein and, you know, what you get in normal foods in protein and uh, things like beans and lentils have really high protein levels uh, that would surprise people so they wouldn't need to buy all this other shit. Um, so I think that's really important. Um, so yeah, fiber should be front of the pack and virtually all the ultra-processed foods have really low levels of fiber. Um, they just find it very hard to deal with real food in their, in these uh, in their factories to stick it together. So they use starches and glues and emulsifiers, gums, all these things to, to make it up. So everyone should be looking at fiber. But in the future, what I hope is, and we are sort of moving that direction with, uh, with Zoe, is to try and get gut health scores so that each food um, actually has a gut a food score. So I think in the future, we will be having... QR codes that people can actually look and see what uh, independent people think of this this food and what's actually in it, and also how it might affect you or or me. And we're not, as we know from the Zoe studies, we're all rather different um, whether we respond to sugars or fats, uh, and, and what our gut health is like. So that that's where I see the future. But a lot of it is in the label, but we've got to get rid of this obsession with uh, sugars, fats which the industry love because they can get around that with chemicals. And would, would fiber be a bit like more than seven grams per hundred grams? Would that be a guiding principle or what would, or 10 grams per hundred grams? That's quite a lot. Yeah, well, 10 is probably too much, but more than five. I, I mean, I think you've got to look at that, a more holistic picture. Um, the key is, you want to be eating a whole range of different foods and they're not all going to have minimum amounts of fiber. Um, we currently have, in the UK, it's around, you know, average person has about between 15 and 20 grams of fiber. And we should be having 30 to 50 grams of fiber. So 95% of us is deficient in fiber. But uh, I don't think you should demonize a food because it only had, you know, 8% of fiber in it if it's otherwise a healthy food because it's got other things in there. So, again, we don't want to be too reductionist about this. The idea is, the key is, at the end of the day, what's on your plate? Have you, have you balanced things out so that if you've got something that's super tasty but low fiber, um, you know, an egg, for example, is perfectly nutritious, but doesn't really have any fiber. Uh, you wouldn't throw that out because it doesn't have fiber. You say, okay, it's, a, it's an egg in there because I've got something else on there, maybe some beans or some lentils uh, that are high in fiber. And so um, it, it's about this holistic view. 
whether it's on your plate by the maybe the end of the day, what have you eaten? Have you got your 30 to 50 grams of fiber by the end of the day? That's what I'm more worried about. Yeah, so it's yeah. just about, you know, we mustn't get to just take this to the next extreme and start demonizing low fiber foods in the same way we did low, you know, high fat foods. Yeah, very good um, point. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, but it, if you are in there and, you know, buying a bread, for example, then do look at fiber. You know, if you within a category, pick the one that's highest. Yeah. And your supermarket may not stock the best breads. And okay, it means don't give up, but you know, do try and pick the the highest one. And if everyone did that, we'd bring up the levels. Everyone would be requesting high fiber bread, not the the rubbish that the ultra processed rubbish that most people don't believe, you know, don't think about. But um, you know, that's that's eleven percent of our ultra processed food comes from supermarket breads. Wow. Jeez, yeah, yeah, because like we that's the first thing to cut out or to at least pick the very best of the worst, you know? Yeah, yeah, because supermarket bread is definitely not like we have an organic sourdough bakery, which all, all our breads have three ingredients. You know, there's organic flour, most of it's come from regenerative, there's there's water and there's salt. Whereas you go to a supermarket and there can be twenty five ingredients with a best before yeah, date it's, of it's, six weeks' time. It, it's it's shocking. Um but you know, we need to educate people. They've been not been told that this is a problem. They've been told it's healthy and, you know, and that just because it's it looks brown with a few seeds on it, it's got to be super healthy. But they're not looking at the ingredients list, you know. And um Yeah. And but if you go to a bakery, they don't have an ingredients list. So, you know, if they bake it on the premises of the supermarket, you don't even know what's in it. And they're not baking it, they're just um heating up the frozen one that's been there for two years. Yeah. So, you know, um I but, you know, it's not easy to get this. It, it took me six years to write the book, Food for Life. It's you know, massive. There's a lot of detail in there because you have to do a lot of digging. You know, people don't tell you this stuff. Yeah, yeah. We've been in the food industry for 20 years. And, like, it, unless you're in it, you don't really, you aren't aware of just how, you know, you're going around following your animal instincts, going, that tastes really good, that tastes good, that tastes good. And following your tastes, yet, if you follow your tastes, you become the product of this environment, which is typically disease is a product at some point, you know, just from eating so much processed foods and the way we live nowadays. Fermented foods, Tim, you're a huge advocate. I've seen you do your fridge um, fermented kimchi. Uh, kimchi. You do lots of, you're a huge advocate. You kefir in the morning. You're wonderful. I wonder if we could talk about fermented foods just before we were doing a beetroot kvass and love kind of lactic acid fermentation. I think it's a wonderful thing. And traditionally, my wife is Polish. And when I go stay with her, with her parents, um, they grow a lot of their own veg and they will always have a massive, like a 25 kilo tub or liter tub of kabushta or um, sour cabbage or sauerkraut in the in the cellar, and they will eat it all year round, and it's always on the table. And then there's fermented or pickled um, cucumbers, and it's such a part of their life. And originally, this was a means of preserving food, whereas nowadays it's a health food. Beyond it, meaning food preservation, it's food that brings a variety of microorganisms, which is important for our gut health and our immune system and overall health. Was that a question? or was Yeah, that just but a... I wonder if we could talk about fermented foods and how much you're an advocate for them. Well, it sounds like you are as well. Oh, so I, that's love uh, I love <laughs> yeah, them. Yeah. We're, all, we're all fermented foodies. Um, yeah. No, but um, yes, I mean, most people, you know, uh, know about yogurt, um, know about cheese, but I think we need to get more and more people moving to the next level. Um, and once you've got 
you realize that there's two or three different species in, in, in cheese and yogurts. But if you go to the next level, you're getting 10 to 40 different species in things like real kefir, or at least homemade kefirs, um, um, kombuchas with fermented teas. You've got the sauerkrauts you mentioned, which is one of the easiest things to make. You know, um, I've got some videos out there just showing how super easy, you know, you can do it. It's five minutes. You know, you get a cabbage, you chop it up, you put it uh, with some, you know, 2% salt, add a bit of water, you know, add a few seeds, done. And, and you know, and in, in a week or so, you've got your stuff, which in the fridge will last for three months. So people need to learn this because we, we used to all know this. Um, a couple of generations ago, you know, um, this was routine before fridges. Everyone had to store their stuff. And now we throw it away. If we have too much cabbage at the bottom of our drawer, we throw it away. We could conserve this and keep it. And it's super healthy. All the studies are now showing that people who eat regular fermented foods, particularly if you can get above about three portions a day, has a real impact on your immune system. And a lot of the studies were bad in the past. They were small little tiny studies, but there's now really good ones. And uh, you know we're doing a big citizen science project with Zoe, getting about 20,000 people to start eating fermented foods for three weeks and see if they can get up to you know five portions a day of varied ones. And that can include these kombuchas, fruit kefirs, um, all these things. And people say to me, oh, it's expensive. And it is in the shops expensive, and there are some fakes in the shops. But if you make it yourself, it's incredibly cheap. Uh, and it's actually really easy. There's a sort of mindset, oh, I don't want to do bugs. When I'm if I get it wrong, I'm going to die. Um, people uh, are uh, reluctant to do this, but all our ancestors did it, and they survived. And uh, I think we should all embrace it. Certainly, you know, I have several portions of fermented food every day, and I'm finding innovative ways of adding it to my cooking all the time. And I think we've got to sort of reverse the clock and uh, and look to populations like Poland and uh, Eastern Europe or uh, other countries where a lot of this stuff came from and uh, start using it again. Uh, we've really lo lost a trick. But luckily, I mean, I started talking about this. I remember when I, my book, The Dark Myth, came out about six six or so years ago, um, nobody had heard of kefir and uh, kombucha uh, in England, and it's in every supermarket now. So the good thing about you know our part of the world is we can change um, how quickly things happen. And we've got a food culture that does shift quickly, so I think we've got a chance there to do good stuff. Yeah. Tim, this has been brilliant. You're, you're, you're so inspiring. You genuinely are. I wonder if you could talk briefly just about Zoe, just for people interested, because I know you're now off personalized nutrition. Personalized nutrition at large, even for identical twins. Yeah. So, um, for people who want to learn more about personalized nutrition and uh, learning about your gut and getting your own scores, um, joinzoe.com is the website to go to. It might be zoe.com soon, um, but joinzoe.com is available in the US and the UK, 
or if you've got a dress there, you can get uh, get started. And it's a, a glucose monitor. It's a, a blood fat test, and it's a gut microbiome test. We put them all together and give you really uh, uh, the tools for which to choose your foods best for the rest of your life. And I think that's what we're trying to do with everybody is change the way people think about food uh, forever. Uh, because the food choices you make are the best tools you have to improve your health. And I think that's a message that doesn't get across enough. And we all have that power. We just need to be educated. And um, Zoe provides that. And if you haven't got the money for those tests, we have a great podcast as well, which informs about nutrition called Zoe uh, Science and Nutrition. And there are lots of other ways of uh, just listening to me on Instagram, et cetera, to get a lot of these tips. So we need to start educating the world. And uh, I know you guys are, have already been doing that as well. So it's yeah. um, been a pleasure talking to you. Oh, you're brilliant. You really are. I really admire your work. You're fabulous. Look forward to meeting you. Cheers, Bye, Tim. guys. Bye, 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 Bye. 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 Bye